Four qualities of fowl are recognized in cookery, and each plays its part, has its uses, and is quite distinct from the other three. We have one, pullets, young fat hens called poulard, and capons, usually served whole, either as relevé or roasts. Two, chickens, so-called a la reine, roasting or frying, used for sautés and chiefly for roasts, called poulet. Three, spring chickens or broilers, best suited to en cocotte or grilled preparations. Four, chicks or squab chickens, served only en cocotte or grilled. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back. It is a delight to be spending time with you again. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham. This is Chef Demoni. And if you're dropping by for the first time, Chef Demoni is my podcast about food. On the show, I talk to chefs and lawyers because I love food, and I love sharing food stories, and also because I've cooked in professional kitchens and I've practiced law for more years than I care to admit. So the people I know most are chefs and lawyers, so I talk to them about food. And that is the show in a nutshell. All right, a little bit of housekeeping, but don't worry, it will not be long, and soon I will be taking you to my beloved Las Vegas, Nevada, for a talk with a chef I am so excited to share with you. I have been wanting to speak with her for so long, and it has finally happened. But also on the topic of Vegas, my friends Julian and Kelly from the Vegas Confessions podcast are part of the team behind a really fun new app called Vegas Near Me. You can check out Vegas Confessions, the podcast, and their YouTube channel for lots of information about the new app, but I have just downloaded it, and what I'm loving about it, not surprisingly, I suppose, is the really great insights that it has on Vegas restaurants. It probably goes without saying, but just in case I am not in any way affiliated with Vegas near me, I am not being compensated for mentioning it, I just know about the app because Julian is a friend and an amazing content creator. And... Vegas Near Me has kindly included links to Cheftimony episodes on all sorts of Vegas restaurants. Check out the app to see just how precisely they link podcast and other content to a restaurant's listing. It's unlike anything I've seen before, and really well done. So, Julian and Kelly, thank you for this, and thanks for including Cheftimony. All right, very soon to Las Vegas, but first, why all that talk about the four qualities of foul recognized in cookery. That is quite the list, isn't it? The chef you are going to hear from sets seriously high standards for the meat that she uses in her restaurants, and it was a comment by my guest, who is Chef Nicole Brisson, during our talk that caused me to rifle through my bookshelf and take out my battered 1941 copy of the Escoffier cookbook. There is a specific breed that is better for broiling, for poaching, for roasting, you know, and, and that's kind of when you read a scoffier or you read the silver spoon of, of Italian cuisine and, and you, you see something like a capon, you know, we don't, we don't see that much in America. You know, it's an older chicken that has, has value to so many different cooking preparations. My version of the Escoffier book, as it said in its publisher's note at the beginning, is the American edition of the great French master chef's world-famous Guide Culinaire. But 
My high school French being some years behind me, I'm glad that I have this English language version. But the point is that there is more to chicken than chicken. Or there was. And I think there should be again. And Chef Nicole is doing something about that. You will hear her thoughts on the importance of choosing your meat very carefully and treating it very carefully in the course of preparing an exceptional meal. Nicole is behind several fabulous kitchens in fabulous Las Vegas. I first tasted Chef's work at Carnivino, and that is in the Venetian Resort and Hotel. That restaurant is home to my favorite steak ever. You are going to hear more about that today. You'll also hear about Carnivino's incredible dry aging program and a really remarkable off-site aging facility. Chef Nicole also talks about her early days in cooking, about some intense experiences in Italy, and about how kitchens are changing for the better. And interestingly, Chef got some advice on handling kitchen stresses from Chef Mario Batali, who, along with Joe Bastianich, was behind some Vegas restaurants which Chef led. Yes, that is that Mario Batali who has now left the city after a series of allegations against him. But on a happier topic, Chef Nicole and her partners now have their own amazing restaurants on the Strip and one in the works off Strip as well. I'm really glad that they are such a big part of the Las Vegas food scene. Now, longtime listeners, you might remember that when I interviewed chefs Lorraine Moss and Louis Victa from Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone, they talked about Chef Nicole in particular as a champion of ethically sourced meat. And that she is. You are going to hear about how Chef supports meat producers who do things well, and you'll hear a quote as well that really resonated with me. To eat them is to save them. Chef talks about the local food producers scene as well, and the surprising number of farms that are found really quite close to Sin City. And what a lot of people don't know is there are more farms in close proximity to Las Vegas than there are to L.A. or San Francisco, which is, is really amazing when you look at it. There is so much ahead. You'll hear about Chef's early days in education, about her time at the Wynn Hotel when she first came to Las Vegas. You'll hear about the start of Slow Food Las Vegas during the pandemic. And, of course, we talk about Chef's restaurants Brezza and Barzazu in Resorts World, which is this huge and the newest casino resort on the Strip. You'll hear a bit as well about 8 Cigar Lounge, and that's in the same property. We also touch on Amari, Chef's upcoming neighborhood restaurant. And at the end of the episode, you are going to hear some of Chef's recommendations for great after-service places to eat in Las Vegas, particularly some on and around Spring Mountain Road. All right, what else can I tell you? Oh, I can tell you this, PDR. PDR means private dining room, and that might be a term that's new to you, so just so you know. All right, let's go then for a remote chat between Gibson's British Columbia and the PDR at Brezza in Resorts World in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Here is my talk with Chef Nicole Brisson. Well, Chef, thank you for joining me here on Chef Demoni. I've got I've got an introductory question that requires a story, but even before I get there, I just have to comment that you have done a lot. I'm super happy to be talking to you because even in Vegas, you've done a ton. I want to ask you about your early cooking days, but a few things I read about you recently. You, of course, have two new restaurants in a huge new casino resort on the Strip. You are the first woman to become an executive chef, the executive chef of an Italy in the U.S., 
the first chef appointed to the board of directors of the Southern Nevada Health District. You volunteer your time to give back to your community, and you're named 2022's Chef of the Year by Desert Companion Magazine. So it it is a whole lot, and I want to get into much of that, and I was trying to figure out how to do it. So here's my way. I'm going to start with a quick story that leads to a steak and ask you my my question about the steak. So the story, and this is probably very, uh, very common to many visitors to Las Vegas. I was playing blackjack in the Venetian. And I was up about $150 and I thought, you know, and I was, I was on a solo trip. I was there staging and I thought, okay, Hey, I've just won some money for dinner. So I'm going to go. And I went directly to Carnivino where I, I had wanted to go for a long, long time. Oh wow! And of course you were in, you were in charge of the operations at the time. And I sat at the, I sat at the bar, chatted with the bartender who was wonderful. He directed me to a ribeye steak that was, that was off off menu because he had seen me looking at the one that was on menu but he said look we've got one that is from our dry aging program and uh it's not listed on the menu but it's available be perfect size for one if you're interested and of course i was and i have said this many times since it is the was and remains the best steak i've ever eaten um and i had it with (laughs) it i had it with a couple of glasses of of wine at the bar and it was just incredible. And I want to ask you about that steak because it leads to a whole bunch of things. Your experience at Carnivino and leading the program there, uh, dry aging, these dry aging facilities that I hear you have (laughs) and uh, the importance of sourcing meat and ethically sourced meat. So that's my background story. And my question is, how was that steak so good? Well, that's that's a great segue. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And I'm very happy that you got to enjoy the experience at Carnivino because we still to this day, I mean, even here at Brezza, we have a number of clientele that that have found us and and really came here because it, it felt like that Carnivino home that they're used to. So we really appreciate that. So the dry aged steak, uh, John Curtis had had basically called me the meat princess about 10, 12 years ago. And he was one of the first ones who kind of recognized that we were we were doing something really cool with the, the dry aging program and developing the flavor profile and and kind of taking it one step further than, than everybody else in the industry is doing. And when Mario and Joe and my predecessor, Zach Allen, had had really started to, to conceptualize Carnivino, they wanted to do something different. They wanted to do a steakhouse that was Italian-themed, which is a little bit unusual, but also a great place where you can get a beautiful artisanal pasta, a great farmer's market inspired antipasti, and then go into a really beautiful steak, but have that full, all-inclusive Italian dining experience. We want to welcome you into our table. And I mean, I'm sure you felt at the bar, we had a, a great staff that really just made everybody feel like they were they were individually the only customers at that bar. And we continue to have rave reviews years and years later, which is great. So industry standards for dry aging are typically about 45 days and 45 to 55 days. And what that does is when you're dry aging, you're controlling three things. You're controlling the the airflow, you're controlling the humidity, and you're controlling the, the temperature. And that's really it. You put large format cuts of meat into that room and you develop a flora in that room. And the longer the room exists, the more that flora grows and accumulates and Every year that we were open at Carnivino, that floor just got better and better and better. And it really curated that that beautiful kind of funky but almost sweet uh, dry age flavor that you you really could obtain towards the end. And it was real. I mean, I ate that beef every day for probably... <laughs> 
10 consecutive years. And, you know, we, we were always trying to meet to see where it was and see how it developed. And it, it was really ironic because depending on on the marbleization of the cut, depending on the, the kidney fat on the short loin, depending on the size of the eye, all of those affected the, the way that the piece of meat dry aged. And, you know, you, we, we learned a lot about the process throughout curating carne vino, but by the end, by the time we closed, we got best steak in the U S which was really amazing by men's health. And it was something that I was really proud of because we spent so much of our time. I mean, every Monday, it was my sous chefs, myself, that we, we called it Meat Throwing Monday. And we would get to our offsite facility, which was about 5,000 square feet. And we would get in anywhere from oh. five to 8,000 pounds of meat in a week. And it would literally be me and a butcher jacket and some of my staff, some volunteers from the front of the house. And I would physically get into that combo covered in fat and blood. And I would hand off a piece of meat to, to my partner who was weighing. And then we would weigh it. Then we would rack it, then we would tag it, and then we would rotate it. And then you scrape the floor and there's some maintenance of the room that you have to do every week. But it's really just kind of a, a U-shaped process of moving the meat around and, and constantly rotating till we got to that. Our our minimal dry aging was about 90 to 120 days because we felt like after after 90 days, the, the flavor just kind of plateaued. So <clears throat> we found that, for, or sorry, from that 55 day to 90 day, the flavor development kind of plateaued. And then once we hit that 90 day, we felt like it really jumped up uh, to another category. And we really got some of those gorgonzola, truffle, sweet characteristics that we really wanted to obtain some of those earthy, you know, really kind of umami dry age profile that you wanted. Wow. And and those came through in the steak that I had. As I say, it was it was really, really remarkable and, and unlike anything I had had. So what what was the, uh, the the cuts of meat that were coming in? In what format were they coming in? So we, uh, we, were, we were collaborating with Nyman Ranch and I would deal with Do- John Tarpoff, who had a great connection with Adam Perry Lang. And Adam Perry Lang originally consulted on our program when we first opened. So I would basically email him my orders every week. And then I would get whole combos right from slaughterhouse to our offsite facility. So it never touched cryovac. It was, it was whole primals. They were whole short lines that were about anywhere from 65 to 75 pounds, whole long bone ribeyes, which were about 75 to 85 pounds. And then I would do strip loins as well, just for the New Yorks, because we went through such large quantities. But I mean, it was, it was, it was quite the operation. I mean, we were averaging anywhere from on busy nights at Carnivino, we were doing 750 to biz- the busiest night we ever had was 975. 975 <laughs> covers. Wow. That is an operation. Can, can you give us a ballpark on any given day in that facility? How, in terms of dollars, how much beef was in there? Well, yeah, I always kept about, I always kept any, on slower times, about a little over a quarter of a million dollars worth, but then busier times upwards towards half a million to three quarters of a million dollars worth of meat. So, I mean, it's, it's like having a, a wine room, you know, you're, you're investing in something that's going to pay off months down the road. And, you know, if it wasn't for Mario Batali and Joe Bastian, which I would never be able to do a process like that because they were literally investing in our future. Right. And, and of course, one of the, one of the reasons I love the Vegas food scene is you're able to do things in that city that, that are, are difficult in so many other places. Right? And, and that a, scope, you know, I mean, it's really, yeah. to, to me, I mean, I know you wanted to touch on this later, but I, mm-hmm. I'm a huge advocate for small boutique companies and small farms. And it's really great that sometimes I can call up a small farm and say, I can take it all. <laughs> what do you mean? You'll take 
yes. pounds of mushrooms. And I'm like, yes, I will take all 50 pounds of mushrooms. <laughs> you know, you're going to have a week where you're going to just tear through a ton of product. And it's, it's an honor that we get to support them and, and, you know, that we might be one of their few, few clients that, that, buy all their product. And I can imagine how happy that makes the farmer having seen various producers come around Vancouver and make, you know, 20 stops at exactly. the restaurants, or right? How many farmers markets do they have to touch? And yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, Chef, let's go back to, we'll come back to the Las Vegas Strip, of course, in your current operations. But, but I'd love to hear from you a little about your early days. And um, just a couple of points that I know from reading about you, it sounds like you started cooking really early uh, in upstate New York with your grandmother and then and then had some early career experience after culinary school in in Italy which is which is of course has has shaped your career so so please tell us about those experiences yeah so I originally I grew up in upstate New York um, about 40 miles west of Albany at the foothills of Catskill so it was a very very rural when I was 14 years old and my sister was 15 we we moved out of my parents uh, we found a, a apartment in the local penny saver. And I moved across the street from one of the first farm to table restaurants that I worked. And I always carried a number of jobs through high school, whether it was babysitting, house cleaning, prep cooking, washing dishes, you know, eventually working, working my way up to more elaborate, like uh, line cook positions and sous chef positions. Um, but my junior and senior year of high school, I joined a vocational program. So I went to a vocational school out in Schoharie County. And uh, there I became president of VICA, and I started competing in fine dining room service, extemporaneous speech, and um, baking and pastry, because I figured they were all skill sets I would need if I eventually opened my own restaurant. Because of the program, I ended up obtaining about $15,000 worth of scholarships to Johnson Wales University. So I inevitably mm. put myself through Johnson Wales Culinary School in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. But in my time living in that small town, it was called Rensselaerville, New York. It was where Andy Rooney lived. Uh, Molly O'Neill ended up buying a house across the street from the farm to table restaurant that I was working. And we started doing a number of community events together. And I would go back and forth from, from the Albany area to, to Rhode Island doing my associate's degree. And once I graduated from culinary school, Molly O'Neill looked at me and she said, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go to France? Or are you going to go to Italy? And I just kind of laughed. <laughs> and like, well, Molly, I don't have any money. <laughs> and she said, well, you, you must, you, you have to go to Europe. She said, well, we have the James Beard Awards happening in New York City. Why don't you why don't you take the train out and, and just come spend some time in the city? I have some very influential women who are, are going to be in town for the James Beard Awards. And I want to introduce you and take you out to dinner. So through there, she introduced me to a number of uh, local writers in New York City. Faith Willinger ended up being in town from uh, Florence, Italy. Uh, she wrote Red, White and Green, Travels Throughout Italy. She's kind of the Julia Child of Italy. And uh, Benedetta Vitali had been nominated for her book, Sofrito. And Benedetta was the first wife of Fabio Pichi, who owned Gibreo, right in Florence. And uh, had dinner, got to know them a little bit. And wow. it, talk about opportunities early in your career. This is amazing. <laughs> and Benedetta said in her broken English, she said, I can tell you work hard and and through the conversations, they said, Well, we're gonna we're gonna be your basically your fairy godmothers and Two weeks later, I got on a plane, never leaving upstate New York, and besides going to Providence, and moved to Italy at 21 years old. And I landed at Rio in Florence, working for Fabio Picchi originally. Great experience. Really intense kitchen. I, I learned so much from Fabio. I can't even... I can't even begin to articulate how much I learned from him and just how he paved my future as working in Italian cuisine. 
And then I went up to um, a vineyard cart called Castella de Ama, and I worked with their, I took care of their three kids. I worked with their private chef, did things like Pomodoro picking and canning and things like that. Uh, from there, I went to Penzano outside of Greve, and I worked for Dario Schicchini, a famous butcher who, who lives up there. And he became really like my Italian dad. He was orphaned at a very young age and took on the butcher shop. And even though both of us spoke very broken, he spoke broken English, I spoke broken Italian. Somehow there was just, there was a tremendous amount of heart between the two of us. And he just treated, treated me like a daughter from day one. And we still remain close to this day and still do events together. And uh, from there, I moved outside of Caserta, uh, lived out south for a little bit. But I, my heart was so much in Tuscany that I just ended up coming back to work for Fabio and Dario for a little while longer, just because I love the experience so much. One thing I did forget, I mean, I did move out very young, but my mom, my mom did, my grandmother was actually not a chef. My grandfather was. He owned a, a restaurant in Saratoga, New York, uh, right outside Saratoga in Balsam Spa. And uh he died when I was about five years old, but my mom grew up in the restaurant business and all throughout my childhood, we lived in a super rural area. So I, I don't think I had fast food until I was 26 years old. She would can, we had 14 acres of farmland. We had uh, strawberry wow. pyramids, blueberry bushes, peach trees, apple trees, pear trees, green wow. beans, potatoes. <laughs> so she would can <laughs> for all the months of the summertime to get us through the long, harsh kind of upstate New York winters. And the more, I traveled throughout Italy. I really realized that the, the I, I guess the agriculture kind of paralleled in so many different ways because you cook, you end up cooking very seasonally, you end up living off the land. And as soon as I moved to especially Chianti, it really reminded me of my roots of growing in upstate New York. Wow. Wow. Is is it fair to say then, did you, did you have any doubt ever as a being a high school kid through your early years? Or it sounds to me like cooking was what you love to do, what you did do and what you knew you were going to do. Yeah. You know, I, I always say that I think this career chose me. I didn't choose it. You know, I think a little bit of it in the beginning was more about survival. And it just came natural to me because I grew up working with my mom, looking, working alongside my mom, working and cooking meals for, for the home when I was young. And, you know, it just, I, I would say that there's always a sense of like insecurity as a young chef or a young cook. And I, I find myself, the older I get, I'm now in my forties, just you gain that self-confidence as you go. And and trust me, if I said it was not intimidating, you know, jumping into <laughs> a, a world renowned restaurant, one of the most famous restaurants in Florence and having 10 different languages spoken around me and things thrown at you. And, and just, it, it was a very chaotic kitchen. And, but like I said, I, it, it taught me so much, but um, it was extremely, extremely intimidating. I remember my, my mentor from upstate New York, we had been trying to, we were playing phone tag back and forth because he became like a father figure to me as well. His wife ran the front of the house. He ran the back of the house. And we finally got on the phone and he said, how's it going? You know? And I just started bawling. <laughs> tried to even speak English in in about a month because it was just, I was struggling through, you know, I have my little handheld dictionary and you're flipping through trying to translate every word. And it it was extremely intimidating, but such, such a great learning experience. And I would say to anybody in their early twenties or or early twenties, mid twenties, graduating college, it's, it's such a, integral part of cooking if you can go overseas and you can immerse yourself in another culture and just and it makes you appreciate the states so much more as well right when you return well 
I want to, I want to, and we need to transition back to the Las Vegas Strip, but <laughs> I also want to stay in Italy. So <laughs> let me let me ask you this because what I was thinking when you were describing your experiences in Italy and even upstate New York and the and the uh, the farming, the seasonality, the access to ingredients, and then the the lack of access to other things like mm-hmm. fast food and prepped food and that sort of thing, that is all so different from Las Vegas. Yeah. And much, much as I love Las Vegas, it's not that. <laughs> so how do you bring that? Because it's clearly working successfully for you. How do you bring small town? How do you bring seasonality? How do you bring mm, that ethic or those experiences into the middle of a crazy casino complex because that's what Vegas offers. <laughs> it's a very interesting question because I remember when I was getting ready to move from upstate to New York to, to Vegas, everybody was like, you'll be back in a year. You know, you're not going to make it. And, you know, it's like you, you grow up with, with that small town mentality and it just tends to be very, very harsh in some ways too. And yes. I, I was so attracted to the the excitement of Las Vegas, you know, the big casino life, the lights, the action, you know, the 24-7, the, the go, go, go. And, it, and honestly, the city is so conducive to the chef's lifestyle because, you know, I can go, I can finish work and eat Korean barbecue at one o'clock in the morning. I can, you know, have great pho, have great Japanese food. I mean, it's just, we have access to so much here, which is really amazing. But when I first moved here, I opened the win and I opened the win because I met a gentleman named Stephen call who was uh, working in New York city. And uh, he was friends with a photographer that I did his wedding at the small upstate New York restaurant that I was working. And he said, well, I know you're looking to move out West. And I said, yeah, I was looking at California and I'd done a number of stages in California, but as you know, California is extremely expensive. And I had just gone back from two, a two-year stint in Italy. And he said, well, I'm getting ready to do a project with Steve Wynn. Are you interested in, in checking it out? So after two interviews in New York City and a phone interview and an internet interview, I literally drove, packed my car, drove cross country, and landed in Vegas. Yeah, it was very, talk about culture shock. <laughs> from small town, small town girl to, to Vegas life. And it was, it was very eye-opening in a lot of ways, but I, I think a great stepping stone for me was really getting my foot in the door at the win because it was a very prestigious hotel. It was um, new. It was exciting. It was union. It was high high numbers. I mean, we were, I started with Stephen Call, and then I ended up with Mark Podovan at Banquets, and then I ended up with Paul Bartolota up until I transferred over to Venetian Palazzo. And all, all great experiences with three really great chefs. And from there, once I started, I landed at Venetian Palazzo. It really kind of brought me back to my upstate New York roots. Like we, we had all the people that had come out here to open with, with the Halle Bastianich group, they were used to farmer's markets in New York. And, you know, uh-huh. we wanted to bring that to Vegas. So we actually started our first farmer's market in conjunction with Carrie Clasby, the intuitive forager. And she had access to a lot of small small California farms that didn't have means for distribution. So it really gave us a, an opportunity to really help that community and our community and really gain exposure for local ingredients. And what a lot of people don't know is there are more farms in close proximity to Las Vegas than there are to LA or San Francisco, which is, is really amazing when you look at it. There's little oasises here in, here in Nevada alone. You know, you can go to Sandy Valley, you can go to Pahrump, you can really find some of these small farmers who have really managed to to build these really great irrigation systems and live off the land here and, and have a different kind of environment and different 
you know, it's more prickly pears and stone fruits and <laughs> things like that. But, sure. <laughs> but there is, agri- there is agriculture here. You just have to find it and you have to be, you have to be aggressive. And, and now I think fast forward almost 20 years later that I've been in Vegas, like the, the farming community and we've, we launched our slow food chapter here on the Brezza patio after Brezza had opened um, on the executive board uh, for slow food. We started during COVID actually. And that took, I mean, I know, Chef Gio from Monzu tried to, to make it happen 17 years ago and it just didn't stick because we didn't have the sense of community. And now I really feel like we have a core culinary community that didn't exist almost 20 years ago. People were moving out of Vegas just as quickly as they were moving in. Now there's a group of culinary professionals who are my age in their late 30s, early 40s, who now have settled down. They've bought houses, they've invested into properties or land and restaurant groups, and they might own restaurants multiple independent restaurants or have their own, have their own hospitality group and things like that. So it's been amazing to watch. Yeah. Yes. That's a trend I've been watching and, and been delighted to see the, the number of chefs who cook at the, you know, the fancy strip properties uh, with big names, but then really decide to stay in Las Vegas and might wind up doing something completely different and, and off strip. I think of um, Brian Howard at Sparrow and Wolf and, and Jamie Tran at Black Sheep and, and so many of these chefs. And so uh, that's a great point because inevitably you're going to have this community of chefs that really wants those farmer's market products, right? Exactly. Can we go back to the win for a second? I didn't, uh, I didn't know uh, um, that you had been at win and at Bartolotta. Do I have that right? Bartolotta. Yep. Was that the restaurant? I think this is right. I never made it there that it became Costa de Mare. Exactly. So Paul originally, he his. He had a bunch of family business in Milwaukee and uh, I believe Bartolotto was his first Vegas restaurant. And what he did was really unique to the Las Vegas culinary scene because he was bringing, he's flying out fresh languistines and Chicala and Aragosta and all these, these beautiful crustaceans from, from Liguria and Moleque, you know, that Vegas had never really seen before and had this amazing fish cart that he would wheel up tableside. And we were doing, we were doing risotto al menu and white truffles and whole fish. Mm. It was it was really simple preparations that you would find in Italy all over the place, but done so well and done at such a high level. That was, I, I think he definitely broke the glass ceiling for a lot of chefs here in Vegas. I remember looking at the menu and I remember the langoustine standing out to me and there were various sizes that you could order. And they said, you know, these were swimming in uh swimming in the waters off italy 24 hours ago so oh, you, i mean we would unpack them out of these styrofoam boxes and they would be lively <laughs> it was it was really amazing to see well take us inside resorts world if you would now chef and to let's start with brezza and three words and we've touched on all of these things already um but three words jumped from your restaurant website seasonal sustainable and of course italian and then I want to get into the uh, the meat and the the steak program there. But tell us what is what is Brezza all about now? So so Brezza's my my first restaurant where it's my name, which was really kind of scary and intimidating. <laughs> I met Jason Rochlow, my my business partner, and uh, he had worked with Michael Mina for over thirteen years, opening a ton of operations. And it's really me, him, and our, our two owners, Ernie and Bernie, ironically, <laughs> and um, they. They approached Jason and I and, and said, we have this space at Resorts World and we want to do an Italian restaurant. And when 
Jason and I really started brainstorming about the concept and the logo and, and the development of the restaurant. You know, we wanted it to be seasonal. We wanted it to be we wanted it to be feminine because obviously I'm a female chef. You know, we wanted it to be really about health and wellness. You know, that was something that really resonated with Jason and I so much. Him coming from California, mainly a California background, but originally from the East Coast. He was born and raised in Connecticut and just really has a lot of those same same value core values that I do and and share such a love for food and and fresh sustainable ingredients and and really likes how we source and and the amount of time I spend in bringing in good products like like different boutique farms of, of beef and the heritage pork USA the goats that we bring in for goatober you know all those things that we really get to to specialize in and that really comes from us being independent within resorts world so Resorts World is the first casino to open, I believe, almost 11 years here in the Las Vegas Strip. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a combined company. So it's, it's Genting from out of Malaysia, but then they paired up with Hilton. So there's the three different towers. There's Hilton, Conrad, and Crockford. So three, three various um, kind of towers of rooms and, and experiences. And then they have the district. And the district is really your restaurant row of the, the casino. And I mean, obviously, in new casinos, it's it's beautiful, it's big, it's luxurious. But what I really like about Resorts World is there's a lot of outside light. You know, it, it feels very comfortable, it feels very airy, it feels very open, clean, and bright. You know, a lot of it reminds me a lot of I lived in Asia for a little while, uh, opening in Hong Kong and in sometime in Dubai and stuff. And it it has that same kind of feel in a lot of different ways, but. The great thing about Resorts World is they've given us a platform to really be us. And, and it's given Jason and I the experience to, to kind of introduce something a little bit different to Vegas. You know, we're not a big celebrity name on the door. We're not we're not very corporate. You know, it's, it's really just us making the decisions on the day to day. We're able to, to source from all these small farms and small vendors and, and boutique companies and, and really focus on the sustainability and the the product itself. And then, as you know, if you have great product, it really speaks for itself on the plate. You know, it's it's. You're using great mm-hmm. olive oil. You're using great finishing salts. You're you're starting with a great piece of fish or a great piece of meat. You really don't you really don't have to mess with it much. <laughs> no, no, it does a lot of work itself. Well, let's let's talk about the beef, and we've you've touched on this already, of course, with Carnivino and independent suppliers. But the, the one that leaped off the page for me was the Piedmontese filet. And that was simply because uh, my wife and I spent some time in Piedmont last year and absolutely loved it and are super stoked to go back. But chef, please pick either that steak or another any anyone that speaks to you particularly on this topic of small small producers and ethically sourced meat. And I've been so excited to ask you questions around this since I spoke with Lorraine Moss and Louis Victa uh, some time ago. They were kind enough to appear on my on my podcast, and they mentioned you specifically um, <laughs> and your interest in uh, heritage meats and in ethically raised meats, and in you know how that's the right thing to do in many ways, but also how it impacts the flavor, why it's better on the plate. Well, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's so many levels, you know, it starts with, with just doing the right thing, you know, and, and I learned a lot of that from the Batali Bastianich group and my time out with Patrick Martins at the actual chicken and pig farms and, and really meeting the farmers and understanding how these animals are raised and how, how they're fed and, and how, how they are treated once they're, they're, uh, <laughs> What's a, what's a general word for um, babies? <laughs> like they're, yeah. Babies oh, are, yeah. you know, there's different ways of treating the animal. Are they, are they held? Are they free range? You know, there, there's a lot of things that, 
that come into play. And for me, I think a pinnacle part of my career, my way of looking at food changed in my early 20s when I was chef de cuisine up at Oto, which was Enoteca San Marco before Oto. And it was one of the Patali restaurants and it was a pizza pasta driven restaurant. So very glutinous. And uh, I got diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease where your thyroid becomes scar tissue. And I really started to become very conscientious of what I put into my body because what I put into my body affected how I felt every day. (laughs) And the only person who can advocate for your own health is, is really you. And I started seeing a natural doctor out here and, and really kind of changed my my life path in a lot of different ways. And then, ironically, really quickly after I started visiting these chicken and pig, pig farms, I realized that chickens and pigs and, and turkeys are naturally born with thyroid disease. And that's why we started kind of pumping them with full of antibiotics to withstand the elements, depending on what breed they were. You know, if they were going to be out in 30 below zero temperatures or high wind chills or or whatever it is, we need them to to stain and not get sick. And and that's where kind of the inhumane practices and, and also mm. other not as strong breeds really started dying out. You know, the breed, the commodity market started taking over and the breed of chicken that fit perfectly in a KFC bucket really started to, to rise above all the other breeds. And you started to see, you know, Cornish game hens no longer exist. People think they exist, but now it's just a small breed of chicken that, that they call Cornish game hens. And it's really it's, I don't have children personally, but, you know, I have a ton of children that I work with <laughs> and, you know, you want to see their futures to, to eat them is to save them is what, what Patrick used to always say. And it's, it's so true in so many ways, you know, that, that there is a specific breed that is better for broiling, for poaching, for roasting, you know, and, and that's kind of when you read a Scoffier or you read the silver spoon of, of Italian cuisine and, and you, you see something like a capon, you know, we don't, you don't see that much in America. You know, it's an older chicken that has has value to so many different cooking preparations. And now to to Americans, I think a chicken is just a chicken, which is, you know, mm-hmm. the grocery store, they have that sad little diaper under them and it's not the right color and it's pumped full of water and water. Yes. <laughs> and it's not really how we're, we're supposed to be eating. And once you really understand, I mean, I think for me, the pork was the most eye opening because there's a whole color chart based on breed and in some of those some of those really good berkshire or red water pork chops they they can be the color of a steak and mm-hmm. what americans were used to was a supermarket steak you know that that more beigeish cotton and darkish color and then it's it just goes to show like how how an animal's fed how it's treated how it's slaughtered it just goes into the flavor and the, the taste and the end product so much and and that that's always been really important to me and you know, I, I just don't want to see, I mean, even 10, 15, 20 years from now, like our children and, and people just not to be able to, to be able to enjoy these experiences that we are able to today. Yeah, fully agree. And I was just thinking about some Berkshire pork shops that I've cooked up in recent days. I've We buy usually a half a pig from a, from a local farmer here oh, wow. in British Columbia, and she has Berkshires and they are so good. And you're right. It's this, you'd swear it's a piece of beef that yeah. you're you're putting into the pan yeah yeah and that fat cap that is Uh, so tasty it's the most flavor (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so not if when i come into brezza what what is my best way to experience the restaurant if i come in with my wife should i just say over to chef 
how would how would you recommend that a that a new visitor experience? Um, I mean, I always recommend if you really want the full experience to kind of put it in our hands mm-hmm. because we can really kind of direct you to to what's seasonal, what we're excited about that week or that month. And I mean, right now we have beautiful white truffles in season. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times our, our pastas are changing seasonally. Um, I tend to have a lot of a lot of specials. But we want you to dine like you're dining in the Italian table. Uh, when Jason and I wrote this menu originally, I told him I really wanted to have um, – I talk about a lot of my mentors. I talk about Bill from the Plumber House Cafe in New York, uh, Fabio Picchi from Gibreo, Dari Shakini, Mario Batali, Joe, uh, Joe Bastianich, Lydia Bastianich, Zach Allen, you know, all these people who really – who. Paul Bartolotta, they, they helped shape my career. There's, there's a little piece of everyone on, on the menu, you know, and it's, it might just be like some little, for example, our caprese, it's simple dish. You would see at every Italian restaurant every morning when I was at Gibreo, I had to make this little tomato aspic. It was a tomato gelée basically. And that was be one of the antipasti that went down with the rustic uh, Tuscan bread that they would eat with the tripe and chicken liver and things like that. So I wanted to have that as the, the center of the plate to really just be an ode to, to Fabio and the time that I spent with him. Okay. Things like that. The, the tartare is, yeah. you know, Dario would start every morning with a big glass of wine and a handful of red meat and say, that's the, that's the secret to long life. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. wow. That's better than fasting and black coffee is the secret. I, I think I'm going to give that a try. <laughs> okay. Well, we will see you in February. But please also tell us about your second establishment in Resorts World, Bar Zazu. Am I saying that right? Yes. So we have yes. Bar Zazu, which is right next door to Brezza. And it's uh, we have a cafe side, which is just a little bit of the lighter fare. You know, you can come grab a sandwich, grab a salad, a coffee, slushy with, with mezcal or tequila in it. And then you go into the more formal side, which is, is small plates. We've got a lot of European small plates. Uh, we've got paella. We've got bone marrow. Um, uh, one of my favorites is the the octopus with romesco. We've got a great prime rib sandwich that we do on on pala bread. That's that's fantastic. And then we also, on top of Barzazi, we also do all the food for a cigar lounge as well. So if you want to end the meal with another little snack and a cigar, <laughs> and a cigar. Okay. <laughs> fantastic. I'm not a, a huge cigar fan myself, but many uh, many my, of my friends are, and particularly my friends who go to Vegas. No, Bazaar is beautiful because it's a fun, it's a very fun room. It's very bright. It's uh, got a, Jason kind of designed the room around these, this uh, digital uh, artwork, which is really incredibly beautiful. And we call them the ladies of Zazu and each of their personalities kind of was an influence on each of the cocktails that went on the menu, how we designed the cocktail menu. And it's just really fun environment. We do a lot of private dining in there, a lot of birthday parties. It's very Instagrammable, you know, a fun place. I, I almost recommend to people to either go to Zazu before or after Brezza too, because it's one place for your beginning cocktail and appetizer and then go into a light meal and then come back over for dessert and a digestivo. A digestivo. I love it. I'll, I'll ask you this question now. Do you, what changes have you seen? Because I'm guessing the kitchens in Las Vegas now are different temperamentally from the kitchens that you were in in Italy at the beginning of your career. So what change, because there's a, there, no secret that there have been some horrible places to work as a cook and as a chef just because of the intensity of the environment or, you know, executive chefs throwing pans, that kind of thing. So what changes have you seen over time? 
and how I think it's getting better. So I'd love your thoughts on that. And, and how is it changing and is it changing enough for women in the industry? Because we, we still see not as many women in your position as executive chefs running kitchens. Absolutely. Um, in, I mean, night and day compared to when I first moved here till now, you know, I was one, I was the first female executive chef in the strip I think, in the early days. And then it was usually me and one or two other people that you would always be spoken to in this, the same sentence, you know, and now you're starting to see, like you mentioned, Jamie, you know, we have more, more women owned businesses here in town and it's, it's really great to see the, the transition over time. But I mean, like I talked about my early days at Jabreo, you know, my, my boss was amazing and he was a great teacher and, and a great owner and, but he would break plates over dishwashers heads and say, Guardame, you know, look at me. And, you know, it was at that moment where I was kind of watching it and, and I was very young and impressionable. And I, I said to myself at one point, I was like, that is not how I want to run my kitchen. <laughs> and <laughs> I think you learn just like you learn lessons in life or, or in the kitchen on, on how to do things. You also learn how, what the best way is not to do things. And, and ironically, I, I mean, Mario taught me so much. He taught me so much about getting in front of the media, mm. about writing, about TV. I did five reality TV shows with him. And there was one point in my early days of my career of running a kitchen for him. I was chef de cuisine and I found myself being very reactionary. You know, I, I was feeling insecure. I was in my early 20s running a kitchen full of men. And I, I found the need to express myself by by yelling. And I remember he was he flew in from New York and he pulled me into a, to the PDR with my boss. And he, and I swear I thought I was getting fired. And he said, chef, I, I hear you're, you're yelling quite a bit. <laughs> and just that moment where I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> Here we go. Um, but it made me realize a, a lot about myself and he had me do kind of what seems like a silly practice now that 20 years later, but um, he said, I want you to, I want you to write down the first three things that are causing you to react or, or to yell at somebody. And I, th- I started writing it down by the time I got to number two, I just felt so ridiculous because I realized that it has to do so much more with you personally than it does mm. with the individual that you're, you're yelling at. And it's really about controlling your own emotions and your own maturity mm. And in realizing how to get the best results out of people, and and that was something Mario taught me early on. And and it it was ironic that we inevitably had to close the restaurants because he said to me, he said, "This is your kitchen; it's not mine." You know, you you developed a culture here. You developed a a, a real a really great thing here. And and it was unfortunate that we did have to lay off all the employees from the group here in Vegas. But you know, there there was a big transition and there was a huge change in, in the culinary scene. And I, I think there has been changes for the better. I think there's more awareness. I, I think women feel a little bit more empowered. I think they, they, I think they feel more comfortable in, in people kind of, I, I, I think people think twice about, about their actions in a kitchen, you know, and mm. for me, you know, I've always, I've tended to to want to run. I, I guess I, for me, I would rather run kitchens based on respect and, and mutual respect and not, not necessarily that yelling, breaking plates over people's heads kind of mentality. You know, there are there are times in a kitchen that, that there are a lot stress levels get high and, and the pressure is high. And, you know, there's a lot of outside factors that are that are causing causing those those stresses. You know, it's not an easy job. I think if it was an easy job, everybody would do it. But <laughs> it's <my> hardest. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it's yeah. Whatever else it is, it is not easy. I, I want to talk a little bit more about. Oh, uh, one more restaurant question before we get to Las Vegas generally. And this is, I think, still upcoming. Amari at Uncommons. Yes. Is this what's what's going on there? So that'll yeah. be our, our third restaurant off the strip. And um, as I mentioned before, Jason's got a, a great a great friendship with Michael Mina, and he's building a huge 20,000-square-foot food hall right next to us. We're about a 4,000-square-foot independent restaurant right next to that. And we will be wine, retail, pizza, pasta-driven, uh, just kind of your, your neighborhood spot where you want to buy a great bottle of wine, have a great tomorrow, eat a great pizza, and be with your family, and, and hopefully really get back to that local scene that, that I loved so much and you know, be part of the community. It's right in my backyard, which is super exciting. So <laughs> I mean, yes. as much as I love the, the chaoticness of the strip, you know, that it, it never stops. So it'll, it'll be nice to get back to my, my neighborhood and see some, some locals and some family and friends close by and, and right. just have a different, a different scene for a little bit. And when are you targeting to open that one, Chef? Um, with construction and everything right now, we're looking at uh, March if, we're, if, if everything goes as planned. Oh, okay. Okay. So pretty soon doesn't seem yeah. but then it, is. it doesn't seem well it's the way time moves it's yeah. it's gonna be here well we've already talked a little bit about about um life in vegas maybe you could pick a place or two and i'm asking this question very selfishly for when you finish service and and you mentioned fun maybe going for i think japanese where are where are some places that i don't know about yet if you can give me one or two of your secret spots <laughs> post-service well the nice thing is there's always, always new places opening, especially in Chinatown. So my always go-to guilty pleasure is is Raku. Raku's on Decatur and Spring Mountain. It's uh, Japanese skewers and sashimi and just really simple preparations, uh, great sake list, but just a really beautiful environment too. They've expanded over the years and now they've got three rooms and um, you can do a really high-end swanye experience where you can just stop at the bar and get the great homemade tofu and and some skewers and, and have a great snack, which is great. Kushi, which just recently opened, that's a, a skewer place as well. Great for late night, just skewers and beer. Um, my A good friend of mine, Joe Musclione, just opened up Tang Tang Tang. He used to have, uh, he has Shanghai Taste also in Shanghai Plaza. And I've been dying to go there. I haven't tried it yet. But then just, I mean, there's there's all kinds of places. I do Korean barbecue a lot because it's just easy and quick. And believe it or not, I want to cook my own food after I leave work. <laughs> but I <don't. laughs> After you've been at it for 14 hours. But it's yeah. always yeah. extremely satisfying. And, and then, like you said, there's a lot of great local spots now, too. There's Sparrow and Wolf. There's... There's Black Sheep. Black Sheep is literally down the road from my house. So anytime I'm out running errands and I get done a little early, I'll stop and see Jamie. There's a great katsu place right behind Black Sheep called Tonton that I go to for lunch. They have a good sake list as well. Marche Bacchus is off the strip if you want a great bottle of wine or brunch. The culinary scene in Vegas is continuing to just grow and, and get better every day, which is fun. Wonderful. Okay. I think we're at my last question. And this is for again, for me and for my listeners. Can you describe a dish for us? Doesn't ha- I, I hesitate to say, can you give us a recipe? Because I want something that is simpler than a recipe. Uh, I want something that on those on those days, you're not going for Korean barbecue or for or for skewers and beer, and you need something when you get home. What's a dish that you can, you know, describe in under a minute, and I can cook in under 20 minutes that's going to be delicious i still have great gluten-free pasta in my pantry at all times and i would say that's usually your your best go-to when 
when you're tired and you just want to do something easy, throw on a pot of boiling water. Um, I tend to always have just cherry tomatoes because I'm always making salads and, and just simple things. And my favorite pasta from Italy is uh, pasta alla cartiera, which is really just blistered cherry tomatoes with a little bit of sliced garlic, tiny bit of pepperoncini, Parmesan Reggiano, and uh, some garlic chive or torn basil at the end. And it's good olive oil, really simple. The, the tomatoes break down. They make their own sauce. You can add a little bit of pasta water to, to give it some viscosity, but it's it's really about the brightness and the freshness of the tomatoes. Oh, it sounds amazing. How do you char the tomatoes? Just take a, a hot skillet or cast iron or like cast yeah. iron pan and just really hot, a lot of olive oil and just let them, let them break down themselves naturally. Blister and break apart. Love it. Well, Chef, we are coming up to six o'clock here on a Friday night. So undoubtedly, you've got a busy service in front of you. I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I will thank you again for joining me. This has been so wonderful. And as I said, my wife and I will be there in just about two months. So I will we be sending you a reminder. At Breza and Marzazu and, and having you in Las Vegas in general. Yeah, absolutely. We will be there. So thank you, Chef. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Chef, I can't wait to say hello in February when my wife and I will be staying at Resorts World and we are definitely going to come visit you at Brezza and Barza Zoo. Once again, it seems like far too long since I've been in Las Vegas. I'm really, really looking forward to this trip. All right, that is going to do it for today. But remember, I love to hear from you. So please reach out if you've got a question or a comment for the show, perhaps a guest suggestion or a topic idea. Do get in touch. You can find me on social media. Let's see, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Those are all at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, you'll find me under me, under Graham McLennan. And you can always send me an email and those go to graham at cheftimony.com. A favor to ask, if you are enjoying the show, please tell a food-loving friend about it, and please rate, review, and subscribe to Cheftimony wherever you listen. Written reviews, particularly written reviews on Apple Podcasts, really do help other people to find the show. Thanks for considering that. Okay, that really is all for now. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Cheftimony.